0: knew it required me to continue to learn. Matthew Gilbert joins me on the 107th episode of the Iowa Idea Podcast. Matthew, a native of Waterloo, Iowa, comes from generations of servant leaders and is the founder and president of Iowa Core Incorporated, economic development chair for the Iowa-Nebraska NAACP, and a servant leader on local, state, and national boards, commissions, and committees. Matthew enjoys mentoring youth, volunteering, and holistic wellness. For fans of the show, Matthew is related to Ann Carter, a DEI pioneer and early guest of the podcast. In our conversation, Matthew shares his vision to develop compassionate leaders who demonstrate a mentality reflecting greatness, influence change, and commit to generational impact in historically disenfranchised communities of color. We discuss Matthew's journey growing up in Waterloo, changing course from elementary education to becoming a lawyer to sharing his time and talents to build communities, ecosystems, and helping black families build generational wealth. We talked about his quest to slay the philanthropic dragon, to unlock the power and potential of our community. We dig into what it means to be a black man in Iowa and how Matthew channels his love of humanity to improve the well-being of the residents and communities across the state. We explore the power of continuous learning and the need for our current systems to be more empathetic And future focused. I appreciate Matthew's energy and passion, and I especially loved his framing of the importance of healthy infrastructures for Black and BIPOC communities, which was a completely different take on my standard stuck unstuck prompt. In our conversation, Matthew referenced Abina Imhotep's powerful TEDx talk, which is linked in the show description. It was an absolute honor having Matthew join me on the show. I hope you enjoy the episode. Matthew, welcome to the Iowa Idea Podcast. It's an absolute pleasure to have you here. If you don't mind, uh, for a guest, could you tell us a little
1: bit about yourself? Awesome. Uh, Thank you so much, Matt. I'm really excited. Um, Not only are you my my namesake, uh, (laughs) but also I think we sort of share uh, like minds as it relates to uh, many of the topics that we may even get into today. So um, a little bit about myself. Uh, My name is Matthew Gilbert, and I'm originally from Waterloo, Iowa. Um, I'm really excited about, you know, my hometown, Waterloo, because it actually is where I um, learned uh, quite a bit around, you know, what it is to be uh, to be black in Iowa. As well as you know what it is to be a black man in Iowa, and those experiences have actually uh, been very uh, nurturing um, as I continue to expand my career and and do so many things both here in the state of Iowa as well as around the globe. A little bit about what I do um, specifically: um, I am an attorney, I'm a social entrepreneur, and I'm a philanthropist. Um, I also describe myself as an ecosystem builder. Um, a little bit about what I. Do do technically. Specifically, I coach and advise families, businesses, and communities in preserving their legacy and creating generational wealth. Um, how I go about doing that is just a really great discussion, but I'll give you a chance to just kind of <laughs> let the audience settle into just those particulars.
0: That That's great. Thanks. And I know, yeah, you, you grew up in... Uh, Waterloo, and uh, we met the in Cedar Rapids. It was at uh, Entree Fest. Uh, we were able to to connect there, and then found out that uh, one of your relatives has already been a guest on my on my show. So uh, awesome. when Anne was Anne was one of my early guests on the podcast.
1: Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Ann is just an amazing voice. She's doing so many great things in the DNI space and corporate America, but she definitely has a unique story and I'm so happy that you had a chance to, to, to tap her.
0: Thanks. And talking about your, your journey. Mm-hmm. So a lot, a, a lot of different hats that you're wearing, right? You, you have yeah. uh, kind of as, as um, for lack of better terms, maybe kind of uh, schooling and practice as an attorney and then uh, social entrepreneur, ecosystem builder. Uh, how do those blend together for you or how did they come together?
1: Yeah, so it really starts around wanting to uh, make a difference, right? Um, specifically for me, I come from, as you started to speak to, I come from a family that has been really intentional around uh, helping African American families, businesses, and communities just really advance here in Iowa. Um, that actually comes from, you know, I, I, I say that I'm, I descend from uh, generations of uh, healers. A master healers and master teachers, right? Um, and so with that is just this love for the community, just this love for people, just this this love for humanity, and this idea that humanity has a, a higher moral principle um, that oftentimes gets overlooked when we really start to get into the the functions of of the world or the functions of life and the functions of living. And so one of the things that I've been really passionate about is making sure that um, Iowa um, actually has a authentic understanding, as well as is interested in in advancing and improving the lived experiences of African-Americans here in Iowa. Um, That is where my heartbeat lies, right, is that African-Americans here in Iowa live a marginalized experience, right? And that is often led because of our institutions and our systems really were never set up for African-Americans here to thrive in Iowa. And so being of a, you know, multi-generations of Iowans, right? Um I am proud to say and I'm excited to per, to represent um Iowa's intellectual as well as Iowa's advocacy class, right? Um, And so being a servant leader is at the heart of everything that I do. And leading through service means that I'm willing to put the community's interests and the public's interests before I put my own interests. That, unfortunately, has uh, not been the best for my family, um, partly because my grandfather and my great-grandfather both put the community first, and ended up living uh, a short life, right? Um, Passing away both before they were 50 years old. So that has kind of helped me really want to understand a little bit more about the lived experience, as well as, you know, how are Iowans, specifically African-Americans and Communities of color, how are they staying well here in Iowa? Because dealing with uh, the historic, uh, you know, racism, the systematic racism, and just the microaggressions, they do have an impact. And so, for me, I've always wanted to learn how does it impact the health of of or the well being of us as as humans. And so, for me, this higher good meant that I needed to be well in order for me to do well. But in order for me to do well meant that I could also, uh, you know, help communities and do something meaningful. And I just didn't have to put my own ego or my own um, aspirations in front of figuring out what the community needs and how I can be the best servant.
0: Thank you. I know one of the things I saw recently in the media about you, too, is uh, also work that you're doing on um, building preservation yeah. but, and and building preservation. The way I'm understanding it is is also helping understand uh, black history in Iowa and contributions of black leaders. Do you mind, though, talking a little bit about uh, what you're doing on kind of on the historic preservation front?
1: Yeah, that's really awesome. So it kind of fits within my wheelhouse of legacy preservation, and oftentimes that means that it's a community. But I've also actually worked with families themselves and helping them really protect their legacies. Right, that doesn't mean just putting your name on a building. It actually might actually mean being able to inspire the actual programming that's going on in the building. So what you're speaking to is uh, I serve as a another service-led experience for me is I serve as a commissioner for the Waterloo Historic Preservation Commission. And as a commissioner, I'm a volunteer, but I'm also a part of the local certified government arm, right, of the infrastructure that is supposed to be responsible for actually making sure that we protect and preserve these buildings as well as these stories. Um, the challenge is, is, that oftentimes our historic preservation commissions, because they're volunteer-led, they often go under-resourced and sort of under- supported and don't really have a voice in the overall institution of a local municipality, and so the work that I'm doing specifically is really helping grassroots projects advance themselves to becoming a realistic a uh, project of sorts, right? Whether it's a reuse project, whether it's a new construction, whether it's even designating a, a landmark, a building, or a particular place that has some significance. And what I've been really helping to do is make sure Iowa, the state of Iowa, has a lens for really knowing how to preserve cultural narratives as well as cultural resources, because historically Iowa has been a uh Uh, very abusive when it comes to uh, cultural resources. And we just let them fail. We don't care to preserve them. And that unfortunately leads to so many lost memories, uh, leads to a lost sense of belonging, as well as it really disrupts a lot of your sense of, you know, what you call home or what you call the neighborhood or the community when the places that you used to frequent are no longer there or aren't being preserved and protected. So that's one of the preservation functions that that my business really helps around with. And then we get into the planning side of things, which actually means that we help communities, we help the people, we help the projects sort of move themselves forward through this very technical space that oftentimes uh, communities don't really have a voice in.
0: Thank you. Yeah. And one of the things I really appreciate, and you know, the conversations we had leading up to where we're recording, it, I, I, I hadn't seen it. And so I really appreciate what you're saying too is is under the umbrella of kind of legacy. So now, now the different things that you're doing are coming into clearer focus for me. So I might just be slow in the uptake, but like both the, the historical buildings, right? And the legacy and story, but also generational wealth, right? Where those might seem disparate, but as soon as you put the label of legacy on that, I can see just how both of those do fit together Uh, which came first for you? Was it looking at the, at generational wealth? Was it looking at like kind of the, the, the stories or was it a blend? And then you saw those coming together kind of as legacy. Yeah.
1: Yeah, So it actually comes from my personal story. As I mentioned to you, you know, my great, my great-grandfather and my grandfather both, you know, uh, died early on in life. And, you know, passing away before you're 50 means that you really didn't get a chance to do much planning for the family. And so because of that sort of lost legacy of wealth that, you know, all I was able to grow up with, I grew up in a single parent home. I grew up uh, in, in impoverished environments and situations. And in addition to that, I grew up in one of the highest drug trafficking areas in the state of Iowa, you know? Uh, And so with that being said, I didn't have generational wealth to hang on to. All I had was these stories, but these stories didn't help me navigate who I was and they didn't protect me when I was out in the community trying to grow up to be a a contributor to society. Right. Right. And so it literally came from this lack of, this generational wealth with only these stories to this hollow place of there's got to be a place where these things blend and they make sense together. And it's because of the wealth and the stories didn't really necessarily help me on my trajectory. I felt like there was a need to actually pair these two together. And, And the stories and the wealth are very important, and when you put them together, you really have a great foundation for doing some beautiful and amazing things. I just so happen to turn into entrepreneurship, Other people can do other things to really advance those sort of functions, but legacy and wealth are very important specifically because it takes only one generation to lose wealth, right? But it takes at least four generations to actually build legacy wealth. And and I got that from uh, one of my mentors, Dr. Pamela Jolly, who is a foremost expert on legacy wealth.
0: Yeah, thank you. And I appreciate that's that's a really sobering statistic, right? Think, you know, thinking about how quickly it can be lost after how long it takes to, to gain. And as, as we're talking about, about this too, and you know, uh, especially, you know, an African-American experience in Iowa, uh, if you, if you could share with us why that is so important, not, I mean, not only for you, right, but for, for others and, and, and uh, maybe for lack of better terms, for, for folks that aren't, uh, I identified in BIPOC, but how can we be better allies in understanding kind of this yeah. importance and support that work?
1: Yeah, I, I I first off will implore everyone to go out, go to YouTube, go watch uh Abina Imhotep's uh Iowa Nice TEDx Des Moines. Like it is a must-watch. She does probably one of the best jobs of actually ex- telling you what it's like, what the African-American experience is like without actually having to get into the the, the real depth of, of that, right? But basically, she frames it as, imagine living in the bike lane, right? This bike lane is this place where you're supposed to be cautious, right? You're supposed to be protecting, whether you're a, a motor car driver, a truck driver, whatever, you're supposed to be concerned with the bike lane. We got a special protection for folks on that bike lane. Well, here in Iowa, uh, folks don't care about the bike lane when it comes to African-American experiences. They literally will run you off the bike lane. So as a prompt in her in her speech, uh, in her uh, TEDx, she actually has a broken down, tore up bike on stage to literally help you understand and imagine what it's like to be an African-American or to be BIPOC, right? Um, In a place like Iowa, where you are very marginalized, you don't necessarily see your culture uh, being celebrated or presented. Um, the social capital is uh, very trying at times because oftentimes you have to sort of leave what is natural and comfortable and then be in environments where it's easy for you to be tokenized. Um, in addition to that, you there's a level of, of psychological safety that doesn't exist as well as physical safety that doesn't exist, especially for African-American males who represent one of the largest populations in our... prison systems here in Iowa. So you want to talk about what is life like in Iowa for Black folks? It is dangerous, right, in a sense. And it's not dangerous because you Um have fear for violence, right? Is dangerous because violence happens undercover, right? It happens under the guise of Iowa Nice, right? It happens under the guise of living life in this marginalized place, right? Is where these violences happen. And when you're represent when you're such a small representation of our population and the state population doesn't share the same beliefs, it's really hard to have a sense of belonging. So oftentimes being African-American in Iowa means you're only here for a moment, right? And you're passing through and this is maybe a stepping stone to you doing something else. For me though, it actually was A part of my discovery was actually coming back here to Iowa and actually bring my tools and my resources here. Right. Because being here in Iowa, you learn that in order for you to actually do something profound, you got to leave the state. And so I'm tired of us getting rid of all of our of our human capital as well, especially diverse human capital. And then really not having any capital here to actually make sure BIPOC communities can can really own and share and tell their own stories, most importantly, right, is a rather frustrating experience. And so I'm just being an advocate in every area that I can to make sure communities, especially communities of color, can better navigate, right, some of those uh, barriers that often exist.
0: Thank you. And just going off a slightly different path, just for for a minute, but what I find interesting in what you're saying to, you know, a lot of a lot of the work that I do, kind of in my day job, right, is related to to innovation and also mm-hmm. how how organizations um, thrive. And like what we know there too is when when there's a notion of psychological safety, right? When people can be their authentic selves, how much mm-hmm. healthier the organization is as a whole. And we also know that uh, more the more diverse a team, uh, they actually solve problems faster. Right. So it's it's interesting, both, I think, at an organization level that we might just call like a business or government entity, yep. mm-hmm. but then also thinking about an ecosystem of humans mm-hmm. is I think sometimes we lose, lose these lessons and maybe there's this, this false safety or f- short term mm-hmm. view on homogeneity. Like, mm-hmm. I just want to be around people like me. Right. Or that makes it easier rather mm-hmm. than, you know how do we take a broader long view on how can, how can our state be healthier? How can our community be healthier? Right. And so hearing, hearing what you're saying too um, and obviously, you know, as a white male, right. I haven't, I haven't lived that experience. Right. I I mean, there, there's, there's a lot of privilege that I carry every day that, that I probably don't even recognize too. Mm -hmm. Right. But what I'm also hearing you say too aligns with what we know about like just Great healthy ecosystems mm-hmm. have diversity, right? And they have they have different contributions that are are truly recognized. And so that's that's part of what I also really appreciate about the work and, and effort that you're putting in.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, to piggyback and to make that nexus for you is, is literally the fact that Iowa doesn't not only celebrate Iowa's culture, but we also don't celebrate our identity because we never take the steps, the bold steps to actually develop an identity for what it is to be from Iowa. Right. No one knows. Right. And to be honest with you, you'll be you go anywhere else. And, you know, I'm the black person in the room saying, hey, I'm the black guy from Iowa. And they're like they got black people in Iowa. Right. And this is a part of being in this sense of middle of America. right? Right. Lincoln knew the value of our land. Right. But. Uh, Outside of our 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 indigenous populations, Iowa, we still we we still only plant seeds. We still don't know the fruit of this fertile desert is what I call it.
0: Yeah, yeah. Thank thank you. And just thinking about too, uh, going back when you're talking about legacy and sense of place, (laughs) right? Too is um, I think as 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 you noted, uh, being the black guy from Iowa, right? That's a head scratcher for a lot of people. Right, and then you could throw on top but not only but multi generations, right? You your family mm-hmm. has deep roots in Iowa, mm-hmm. and so just that uh, preserving that sense of of not only place but history too seems incredibly important. Because for me, I kind of nerd out on some history stuff, like digging in on like what happened at this place mm-hmm. or or a history of a building, and and as you noted in some of your like sometimes it's even a just a landmark or, or just, you know, a sign can help, right? You can't preserve all buildings, but even just knowing what happened here. And uh, one of the things in my neighborhood in Iowa City, an artist a few years ago commissioned and made these signs, mm-hmm. right, that just designate what, like, I didn't know but the uh the Golden Sox which were affiliated with the Whites there used to be a base uh semi pro baseball uh stadium mm-hmm. like not far from our house right and there was a streetcar mm-hmm. line that came out here and uh the kids where my kids went to uh elementary school that was uh Camp Pope it was a mm-hmm. it was civil war training camp right and then it's inter- when you you start to understand that and I think it helps you take a longer view of there's been people doing things here and and maybe helps you suppress the ego a little bit, but Mm -hmm. there's also a pride element too, right? In there was stuff here. And so Mm -hmm. that's just a weird, weird way for me as I'm processing, just hearing you say too, is when, Mm -hmm. uh, especially the black community, when its contributions are Mm -hmm. wiped out or not, it's hard for you to, I'm assuming hard for somebody to have sense of place, right? When, when these things have been wiped
1: away. And, and even digging deeper into that sense of place, what it really functions is just having connection, right? Just being able to connect. What, his, what history does, it allows us to connect uh, both memory as well as movement, right? So who, why did they go here? Why did they do this? Who was that? You know, like literally the foundation of memory and movement are so important when it comes to the fabric of just being human, like that's the one thing that we all want to do we all want to connect the challenge is, is that Iowa is this uh transient place where everyone's coming in from everywhere else and you only also sometimes only connect with other people that came from everywhere else because the folks that are homegrown again we get we export them elsewhere because we don't have the resources to retain them we don't have the um the infrastructure to give them that sense of place right and then we just got this like i don't know what it is it's this hangover of being iowan that we just don't really we all want to Run away from where it actually could be celebrated and it should be celebrated, especially on the global stage, um, because I've had an opportunity to represent Iowa on a global stage, being a delegate in other countries. So just imagine what it's like to represent that as well as say, you know what, but. I got this very marginalized experience in Iowa, even though I'm here talking to heads of state and heads of nations, right? That becomes very difficult to really be authentic and to really want to celebrate Iowa. So it required me to actually come back to Iowa and do some work. I love
0: it. I love it. uh, Yeah. And uh, I know we've, we've had some good conversations too in the past. I just really appreciate the, perspective you have and you sharing your your gifts and i know when we talked about also um some of the things related to generational wealth where Mm -hmm. and and this might be me connecting the wrong dots but i see also your legal background right the being able to navigate legal ease for folks where i feel like a lot of generational wealth is Mm -hmm. socially driven right that Mm -hmm. you know like having parents that have navigated a mortgage so they can Mm -hmm. tell you because the common person sits down and looks at banking contracts or mortgages. Mm -hmm. They make no sense. They're terrifying. Mm -hmm. Right. And you, you hope you have uh, somebody that has your best interest at heart, right at the Mm -hmm. bank. Mm -hmm. But just that was another thing that stuck out to me is how much uh, knowledge is socially created Mm -hmm. and having, having that experience. And that's one of the things that I, I I just really appreciate about the work that you're doing is also helping people navigate, uh, what might almost seem like a foreign language, right. Mm -hmm. To, to then start to build that generational wealth, which like is, um, it becomes a buffer for a lot of people too. Like you said, it could be wiped out, but there, there's a lot, there's a lot of, uh, uh, padding in life that people have, if they have like right there, there are people that don't have it. And, you know one 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 mishap in their life can trip them up mm-hmm. where you know if you have a little bit of generational wealth, you just like somebody else actually picks you up and dust you off, right? Mm-hmm. And you, you can get mm-hmm. up running again. So it just Indeed. kind of am I am I close at all on kind yeah. of the connection oh, let, between yeah, legal share, and
1: me, social? Yeah. So let me share with you kind of where you know, me being an attorney, uh, me being a legal scholar, you yeah. know, uh like literally that really comes from. Uh, seeing broken institutions not work for everyone. Right. Yeah. And so I literally went to law school specifically to learn how to trans transact and transition generational wealth from one generation to the next generation, literally. All right. And in order to do that, I had to learn the tax code. And the tax code was actually one of, and it still is, one of the most dangerous uh, instruments and tools for creating exactly what you're talking about, right? This sort of haves and have-nots, the folks that are in the know and folks that are not in the know. So literally what I do is I help families navigate the tax code. I help marital couples navigate the tax code. Um, I help businesses navigate the tax code. Um, Because there are oftentimes um, every administration now is starting to take an attack on the tax code. And some of my tax professors say they'll tell you that anytime you got politicians dealing and trying to change the tax code, you you need to really wisen up. Right. And so for me, I needed to maybe lower the threshold for families and communities and businesses and their understanding of the tax code, because literally it was it was the one thing that was taking advantage of them and their wealth. Yeah.
0: Thank you. Uh, so uh, what was it you you had this? Was it was it mission first or was it an interest in tax code? And then you saw how you could. Yeah, could it, work- it
1: was all it was all mission. Um, uh After leaving high school, I I went to a small Iowa college um, because I was an athlete. Yeah. Um. Uh. to specifically study to become a teacher, right? Like, yeah, right. I come from these, yeah. these generations yeah. of teachers. Um. But actually getting in the classroom uh, was rather interesting experience, especially as a black male. And because I was in small town, Iowa, I was sent to all of these like little small schools. And although it was really a great experience because I wanted to teach elementary education, I wanted to work with young minds. I felt like working with young minds was being uh, threatened by the actual institution that these young minds were actually having to go to every day. So I didn't want to be a cog in the system and just be a cog on the wheel and just continue to support that. So I said, I'm either going to be very disruptive in education or I'm going to find a different platform for me to really scale. And actually, I chose entrepreneurship. Um, and so I used my curriculum development skills that I learned as as a, as a college student to design my own major in entrepreneurship. At the same time, at eighteen, I started my own business. Um, I was a personal trainer. I started my own wellness practice. And being healthy and being an athlete just only made sense, right? And so because of that, I actually picked up some really cool transformational skills. And those transformational skills kind of was what the mission was, is that I wanted to help people transform their lives as well as their physiology. Right. But also their mindset. Yeah. And as I started to lean into that, I started to learn that I really liked uh, developing businesses and helping businesses grow and starting businesses. So that's where the idea or my interest in sort of the tax code came is because I actually enjoy helping these businesses and uh, helping to start a business even more than sometimes even the transformational stuff that happens uh, to an individual or, it, or a leadership perspective. And so blending the two, I felt like the only way for me to really gain the skills, or I should say to do the work that I was meant to do, it required me to get these transactional skills. So yeah. that's why I went to law school to learn these transactional skills. And that's what law school allowed me to do is actually marry my transformational skill sets with these transactional skill sets. Now I'm able to really help most folks through any sort of crisis and that's literally what my hotline becomes is (laughs) crisis control at some point and that just also comes with the burden of being the african-american attorney in town or the black leader in town or, you know, uh, the, the the servant leader in town, it just comes with another responsibility that um, had I been a white guy somewhere in Iowa, I could have just maybe created an island for myself and been okay with that. Uh, but here in Iowa, being an African American male, I really don't have that luxury because my social capital still has to Uh, it has to include my cultural capital as well.
0: Yeah. Matthew, that's great. And there's so many different threads I want to tug on there for a little bit. Uh, Probably at least interesting for you, but I'm just curious, what was your sport?
1: Uh, Basketball.
0: All right. What position? Uh,
1: I played guard. Point guard and off guard, shooting guard.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Right on. Yeah, when I was was a kid, uh, I got all my height. I was as tall as I am now uh, when I was in eighth grade. So like middle school basketball, right. I was, I was playing the post and then all yeah. of a sudden you go to high school there, there's no need for a, a, a center, let alone a forward at five ten, Right. Yeah. So I should have worked on my ball skills a little yes, bit more. I, I
1: left water. I left Waterloo as a high school state champion yeah. in basketball. And so I just literally wanted to keep the excellence going. Awesome. Um Just didn't have the, I don't see at that point in time, there wasn't the same exposure. So I didn't have the reach of possibly looking at attending other schools. And so I just basically yeah. just pointed to a school and just, bam, I'll go there. I, literally, I, I signed up in July, <laughs> school started in August.
0: Thank you. One <laughs> what, what of the other things I'll just share this with you kind of a is, is a shift. So as you said, kind of. Uh, leaders, healers, educate, my, on, on my mom's side of the family, it, it was almost basically like you're you're a nurse, a teacher, or a firefighter, right? So there's a, a lot of that on my mom's side of the family. Um, but my dad was he went to school to become a uh, high school science teacher. Yeah. And you know in the in the education pathway, kind of the last thing you do is your student teaching, which is almost a shame because it's like that's when you're really seeing what this is going to be like. And you're 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 three and a half four years deep in your in into college. My dad was doing his uh, his student teaching and realized it wasn't for him. Became a firefighter. So I always joke that he he saw he saw more psychological safety in running into burning buildings than mm-hmm. teaching high
1: schoolers. Oh, I totally get it. Same thing happened to me. Once I started student teaching, like the light bulb went off, and it was like either save these kids and we got to run now or really do something different. And yeah. Yeah, it's, it's been, uh it's been tough, but I've actually found the ability to teach on different platforms. Right. I'd have to teach in the classroom, which actually has been uh, rather interesting because I was a very, I love to learn, but I didn't like school.
0: Does yeah. That's make-
1: <laughs> that,
0: uh, I love it, man. Uh, one of the things I wanted to do, so this one's a little heavier, but you, okay. you, you mentioned tokenism before, and then mm-hmm. you talked about like the black lawyer, the black social entrepreneur. And, and thank you for, because one of the things I just find interesting is, you know, in, in the white or majority community, one can be self like, Oh, they're really good at this. Right. So they're a social entrepreneur because they're good at that. Right. And, and, or, okay, that, yeah. So I'm, I'm finding it interesting and and challenging. Not that it's challenging to believe, Mm -hmm. but just like empathetically, like as you. So it, what I'm hearing too, it's like, can somebody look at Matthew and say, man, that's the lawyer rather than the black lawyer, right? That's the social entrepreneur, and and I I appreciate you sharing that with me uh, because it 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 it's a little bit more enlightening for me. Mm -hmm. But it does that's I like. a challenge of being recognized and celebrated for your your gifts right without kind of a label but as one of my friends shared with me race is the first thing that enters the room right it's super hard to avoid that but yeah like you just just recognizing that and and I don't even know if you need to comment but I do really appreciate you you saying you know kind of walking that through like how you might
1: be seen in town Yeah, no, I, you know, regardless of my perception, I I think the the better perception is the understanding of Iowa's legal industry. And that perception is where there has to be a reckoning of diversity, equity and inclusion, which has to literally mean that law firms are actually looking for diverse talent. Um, Because when I graduated law school, they weren't looking for diverse talent. Obama was our president and everybody was with black folks at that point in time
0: so we iowa, were post-racism right racism yeah, was done right
1: yeah that lie right yeah. so iowa is going through this huge shift especially as iowa's legal industry and one of the things that firms have to get prepared for is that you know the big box law that we used to think is what we all needed and what was um most excellent is actually getting trampled by technology, right? So I knew that for me, it wasn't going to be, I needed to have a big box law firm in order to actually be successful. What I needed to make sure that I do is, is that I had real relationships with people. And that I could help them along the longitudinal journey throughout their life. That's why for me, when folks come and they want to start a business, I'm really evaluating whether this is a legacy business or someone trying to maybe chase what we call the bag. Right. Mm -hmm. And those are very two different development processes. Right. And same thing with the law. Right starting a law practice is ultimately a legacy business. And I got into an industry where there are multiple generations of lawyers that exist in the same governing, uh, you know, practice, or they got the same client list that they've been serving for generations, right? Just imagine what that means being the black lawyer, right? Mm -hmm. It means that you can either compete or you can uh, get ahead. Right. And for me, I felt like really the 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 opportunity was not even, you know, being presented to the public. The opportunity was really with the people. So I actually leaned into the people, figure out how I could be a, a servant. And what that meant is I had to go start this law practice. The people demanding that from me, that wasn't my my goal coming out of law school. So yeah. it was the people that demanded for me what I needed to be. And now I'm trying to really recalibrate that to make sure that that mission aligns with my personal mission and that these two things really are healthy for me to pursue. I love it and I also appreciate when uh,
0: a little bit earlier in our conversation too you're, you're kind of talk about kind of mind body spirit yeah. components too and and just as uh, as somebody had shared with me one time is uh, you, you can't pour from an empty pitcher right and so like mm-hmm. hopefully you're taking care of yourself as you're you're mm-hmm. giving other people skills to take care of themselves but every time I talk to you I gotta say, it just feels like so much of what you're doing is rooted in, in empathy and love mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. it's just heartwarming to have conversations mm-hmm, with you. Mm-hmm. So I just wanted to get that out there. Cause I, Appreciate I've been talking to a designer from England, Alan Moore, and mm-hmm. one of the things he's working on is uh, something he calls beautiful business mm-hmm. and beautiful business are things that uh, help support regenerative business, regenerative economies, right? Not extractive. And because basically, broad strokes in his extractive leads to hate. It ultimately like, because it it's a, it's a competition for resources where you can't, if you get to regenerative, right. Then there's kind of, it, it's not a fixed pie view of the world, right. More can happen. And, and admittedly it's so hard. And it's just one of the things I always find inspiring talking to you is, mm-hmm. is the there's, there's a, a sense of love and empathy that's sitting behind this that I always hear from you. So I just wanted mm-hmm. to, to call that out.
1: Yeah, no, I I love that beautiful business. I think that is so important. And, you know, one of the things that I was really excited to talk about is uh, social entrepreneurship. Yeah. Um, and the reason being is especially in communities of color, we don't have a real true uh, model for what that looks like. And so what ends up happening is the one person that is kind of the, the you know, uh, they're, they're smart, they're uh, passionate, and they want to do something meaningful for their community. Well, what are they going to do? Well, they go out and start a nonprofit. Now they've put themselves back into sort of, you know, uh, the crosshairs of this uh, dysfunction of Iowa and that dysfunction of Iowa is really centered around some of our philanthropic wealth, right? We got a lot of philanthropic wealth. We got a lot of philanthropy money that's just sitting on the sidelines, right? Being hoarded by private wealth, by, by these families or by these individual foundations or whatever, right? Um that unfortunately creates a very, very hostile environment in the nonprofit sector. So when you want to do something charitable, you gotta compete with the next charity to figure out who's got the worst story so you can get the most money. Like that typically is not the best way to be regenerative regenerative, like you said, especially yeah. around charitable wealth. And so one of the places that I'm just like, man, and once we tap this philanthropic wealth in Iowa and actually position it to do good, we will actually be, it will be a market multiplier. Uh,
0: yeah, absolutely. That, and that's, that's what Alan claims too, is that it, It it's, it's a hard hurdle mentally for a lot of people to get over. And as you were talking about that, I was thinking about the kind of the old mythology, right. Of comparing and contrasting, Uh, kind of the European dragon in mythology versus the, the Asian dragon, like the Asian dragon, right. Is like, it's celebrating. It is, it's life affirming, but the, the dragons, right. In European myths, it's hoarding wealth, right. It's hoarding the, it can't have sex, but it hoards the Virgin, right. It, it, it can't spend the wealth, but it hoards this gold and, and like all the negative components to that. But like, yeah, bring that into real life. It's like, we, we have these philanthropic dragons, sitting here that almost need to be slayed uh you know f- for 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 the village and community to to be its best self
1: that's deep whoa that was awesome philanthropic dragons wow I'm, gonna, I'm Take gonna it. run with it's
0: yours one. run with it i'm gonna,
1: I'm gonna <laughs> run with that one wow that's
0: yeah awesome. so um just as we're you know, kind of coming up on time a little bit, uh, one of the things I did want to ask you too, as mm-hmm. I always want to dig in with, with my guests is one is a notion of stuck and unstuck. Like when you find, mm-hmm. do you find yourself stuck and what are your personal techniques for,
1: for getting unstuck? Yeah. So, you know, stuck for me looks like, um, let me, let me frame this properly. Um, Stuck for me means that the community that I am wanting to support or that I'm working in, um, they wanna support me, they wanna pay me, they wanna, they they want all of these things, but there's these systematic barriers that just exist that are just tantamount to them individually, right? Where I just can't help you. Right. Yeah. So there was a lot of times where I was stuck because I wanted to actually make sure people could access the justice system. Right. But it required wealth in order for you to access the justice system. That is what one of those experiences of stuck feels like. Right. Yeah. And getting unstuck means that I'm actually creating uh, a bridge or creating and opening up doors for folks to access that particular arena, right? Um, that is where I start to get unstuck, right? When the community has the resources that it needs to invest in me, so I can continue to invest in the community. Stuck looks like I'm giving all of my time away and I'm homeless, right? right. Yeah. I'm giving all yeah, yeah. I'm giving all of my resources away and. I don't have a place to uh, protect and take care of my family. Right. Like that's what stuck looks like in this environment. And unstuck means that the community is healthy and that they are they and they, they have access to resources so they can invest in in in, in someone like myself. You know what I'm saying? Uh, a, a resource that is just a continual resource of giving. Right. And if we can continue to turn that on, then we can live unstuck. But unfortunately, we just really like to live stuck to beliefs, stuck to ideas, stuck to institutions, stuck to systems that are broken. Right. Unstuck for me means they invite me to the room and is just all of this earth disruption that I may typically cause. So uh, that's. That looks like.
0: <laughs> I love it. I love it. And uh, yeah, just uh, you know, when we're talking about so many different systems, is one one of my beliefs too is all systems work as designed, mm-hmm. right? We might not say that it was intentional, but they they're working. And so, yeah, for us to shake these, we we have to be intentional about what we're going to change. Otherwise, the system's going to still mm-hmm. produce mm-hmm. the same system, right, mm-hmm. and same outcomes. So, I I love I love your your vision of yep. unstuck. Yep.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. On a personal level, um, to be unstuck is mindfulness. Um, that's both prayer and meditation. Um, that's healthy habits as well as healthy boundaries. In addition to that, it means fun and and having some funds, right? (laughs) And those sort of things allow me to do the things that I love. And as you can see, the things that I love is helping other people. So yeah. if I can continue to remain unstuck, then I can continue to pour into families, communities and and businesses that um will continue to do good as well as inspire others. Thank you. Uh one of one of the other
0: things I like to talk to guests about uh the broad broad categories advice but kind of curious like you know because sometimes it takes a couple different paths. One is uh what's good advice you might have received? Usually we get it from a mentor, but like in my case, kind of almost too, too young and cocky. Like I'm like, what the hell was it? That just a funny phrase. And as you get older, you realize that was actually a nice gift, an elegant payload that, you know, they were sharing, sharing a great insight with me. It just sounded nonsensical when I was younger Mm -hmm. or the other is, and I, I steal this from Austin Kleon's book, steal like an artist. He says, when we're giving advice, we're just talking to our younger self. Uh, So I don't know if there's either or both, but like either good advice that you received Or advice that you wish you would have received uh, earlier in your journey?
1: Yeah, no, I wish, um, you know, I get a lot of advice and um, that, you know, could be a whole nother uh, show for us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Uh, But if I could tell my younger self something that I didn't hear along the way, that would be to be brave and to um, and to. And to be confident in discovering who you will become, right? Because be, always trying to figure out where you are and who you are is sometimes relative, but it also doesn't always mean that it's relevant, right? Because you can be in some circumstances that don't define you, but because of the decisions that you've had to make in life, now you're having to be defined as such, right? For me, one of the things that I always was wanting to become was someone that was going to make a difference. And I didn't really have a whole lot of insight on how that would happen. I just knew that it required me to continue to learn, right? Had someone tapped me and told me that going to school and getting a good education was not the only way and that there was another way i probably would have be a millionaire by now (laughs) you know but instead i gave a million dollars to all these his uh persistently white institutions right to get a piece of paper that basically did me outside of the things that i learned the skills that i developed Man, the piece of paper has not shown its fruits of all the labor that I put into it. You know what I'm saying? Right, I just right. Be honest with you, Matt. I would just be honest with you.
0: Yeah, and that is is as we're living in a more complex, uh, ever-changing society. Too, it's 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 becoming harder and harder for those traditional degrees to demonstrate the value, right? Because it used to just be like a portable credential. Like I I went here, I did, but it doesn't necessarily say. What you can do or how you can attack future problems. Right. And so, yeah, that's another big challenge, I think, in the entrepreneurial space, too, is mm-hmm. like, yeah, how do we how do we cultivate a learning mindset without just, you know, throwing throwing people into to schools, many of schools, which will grind out their creativity mm-hmm. Right. Before they're done with the system.
1: Yeah. yeah. I I wish our school systems really did a better job of positioning entrepreneurship. And it's not just really a career lane. Right. It's actually a mindset. Right. And Mm -hmm. once you start to turn on the entrepreneurial mindset, what you start to look for are solutions versus problems. And unfortunately, our education system right now is only helpful for us to identify problems. It doesn't help us do the creative, the next level thinking of how do you solve those problems. And oftentimes solving these problems mean you have to sometimes abandon the tradition no solution or the traditional way of knowing or way of doing and here in iowa we're very conservative when it comes to um sort of advancing um some of our thought capital and Mm -hmm. unfortunately that becomes very disruptive when you have like Man, we got some of the best and brightest, right? But we gotta we we push them to go elsewhere in order for them to realize and discover that. So thankful to the Iowa i uh, idea podcast because this is one of those areas where now we can continue to build a healthy foundation for thought capital that that's not uh blanketed or coveted in sort of some of the traditions of Iowa because Iowa is still in its sort of. Um, I say infancy, but maybe it's adolescence, right? Because there's still a definition that Iowa has yet to even accept for itself and to acknowledge, but that requires us to both look to the past, look to the present, and actually be okay and future focused.
0: Right, right, right. Yeah, I hear you too. I know one, uh, another guy, Alex Coble Frakes, when she was on, she was also talking about a you know being an entrepreneur and growing up in Iowa, Sometimes it doesn't look like there's a home for you here. Like, so how do we, we continue to cultivate and I love, like, you know, I know the work that NuboCo is doing. I know mm-hmm. ICAD merge are doing it here. Mm-hmm. Uh, those are just ones I'm, I'm, I know they're, they're throughout, you know, in mm-hmm. different, but, but it's still a very conservative state when it comes, even, even venture capital is really conservative mm-hmm. here, right. They are, they already want to, they, they already want to return. It's like, well, if I'm already getting a return, I don't need the, the startup capital. Right. You know? And so, yeah, we're conservative in many ways there. And to your point, I think uh, the dreamers, the creatives, those are different. They don't necessarily see themselves here. Yeah, yeah. And like, to, to your point, you have to have a really strong commitment to come back. Yeah, but, yeah. Rather than like, you know, because it it it's it, easier to go to Chicago, Minneapolis, uh, Austin, San Francisco, New York, right? For a lot of, and, and I think there's so much potential energy that we're sitting on that we, we could harness to make, mm-hmm. make Iowa a superpower. I mean, there's so many, yep. there are so many things, but it's almost like, I feel like we have the wrong lens on the light mm-hmm. here. And if we could change it up, I think there's so much we could do.
1: Well, I think you, it goes back to that, that point that you were making about sort of who's kind of holding the keys, right? Yeah. And when it comes to like, there's literally words that you can use that literally are violent Are violence when used by people of color. Words like investment, right? Words like innovation, right? Words like, um, what else? What's another one that's there? Um, Infrastructure. Like, when you start talking about those, and those are all I words, right? Um, And then another word, inclusion, right? Like, those are all I words that come to mind that when you put them into the context coming from a person of color, these are, dang, you know, they're frowned upon, you know, for black folks to talk about investing in themselves or investing in their community. What's wrong with that? Right. It's, it's frowned upon to say, Hey, innovation looks like this in the communities of color, although it might look like this in a majority community, right? Like, those are concerns that I think what happens is, is that we're so busy trying to talk about how the glass is halfway empty. We have yet to really realize that it's halfway full. Right. And that in order for us to get to that that next level, that that uh, that 10x. Right. Yeah. We're going to have to unlock some of these multipliers. Right. Philanthropic wealth our innovation capital, you talked about venture capital. What about uh, venture philanthropic capital, right? Where you're right, not right, trying yep. to return, the return is a social return, right? Like when are we gonna start really using what's already out there, right? We don't gotta be the 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 home to these things, but we could definitely be a destination for some best practices that don't look or feel like us, right? But that we can make Iowa.
0: Yeah. Matthew I love it and thank you so much for taking the time to join me on the the podcast it's it's always a pleasure to to talk with you and and thanks for for going deep on a lot of these topics I really appreciate it
1: well I'm excited I'm excited to come back I really appreciate what you're doing with the IYD podcast and just knowing that this exists especially for diverse communities is important so i really appreciate you pulling out all the stops to make sure that you have a a a representation that oftentimes doesn't really always look like how we're presented as iowans so i appreciate that as well so thank you